0: My name is Patrick Choi, and I'm the student ministry director here at New City Church with my wife Erica. And if you don't know a lot about me, or if you don't know me at all, I am 24 years old and I graduated from Georgia College and State University two years ago. My wife and I, we work for a ministry called Crew. Some of you older people may know it as Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, we've been married for almost a year. It'll be a year in exactly two weeks. So praise God for that. We're really excited, but. I kind of want to just share a brief story about our marriage and kind of bring you guys into our life a little bit and just kind of show you just how hectic this first year of marriage has been for us, but how great it's been also. We got married on May 1st, but we did not know where we are going to live until the week before. So we closed on our apartment the week before our marriage, and that just consisted of getting everything that we owned as quickly as possible into our apartment. Ended up getting married on May 1st, then we went to Costa Rica for our honeymoon. It was a ton of fun. I gained a lot of weight that week, but um, it was totally worth it. And we came back to Atlanta, and we're only here for two weeks. And that consisted of us just opening a lot of presents, um, trying to just figure out what this new marriage thing looked like, and it was just a lot of fun. But we were only here for two weeks because we're making our way over to Fort Collins, Colorado for something called Crew's New Staff Training. So what that is is every two years, if it's your first year on staff with Crew, you go over to Colorado and... You take seminary classes, you meet all the new staff members, just kind of learn the ins and outs of crew, and it's a lot of fun, but the living situation that they put us in is every newlyweds' dream. So they put us in a dorm room that was about 20 by 20, just a tiny room, two twin beds, and we kind of had to push them together to make a queen bed with a big lump in the middle. Um, we didn't have any bathrooms. We had to share community bathrooms with everyone. We were on a hallway of people who are just like us, everyone so it it was an ideal way for us to start our marriage and so we're, we did that we did that kind of living for for 2 months and it was at times it was really hard because you know you're just crammed in this little space but we came back from Colorado and then 2 weeks after that Eric and I had the the bright idea of buying a puppy um, and that puppy was untrained it woke up 4 times in the middle of the night and it was just maybe not the wisest decision, but now we look back on it, and we've enjoyed every second of our first year of marriage, and I wouldn't change it for the world, but that's just kind of a story of our life and how everything just started this first year. I am very excited to preach here today. I think in the near future, I do want to be a pastor at some point, and I really appreciate, I really value Ryan and Brandon's leadership to me as my pastor at a church and also just good friends of mine in this is actually my first time ever preaching a sermon at a church. So, if it's a little long, if it's a little boring, if it's a little confusing, you know, a little grace would be appreciated this way. But, like Ryan said, we are in, uh, we're currently in a series called Saturate, and we're going to the book of Acts. Ryan preached the first half these past two weeks of chapter one, and I'm going to close with the second half. So, I'm going to read Acts chapter one, 12 through 26. So, follow along with me. It says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons, was in all, about a hundred and twenty, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before, beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, He became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bells gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that the field was called in their own language, Acodelma, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, "May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he has taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen, to take the place in this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So when I first read this passage, when Ryan first asked me to preach, it was kind of hard for me to nail something down just because there's so many different ways that we can attack this. There's so many different ways that we can look at this passage. And I met with Ryan and Brandon two weeks ago, and Ryan actually said, you know, this is kind of a hard passage to preach on. And my first thought was, well, thank you, Ryan, for giving it to me. But as I I read more and kind of read more commentaries and asked for guidance from other people, I really felt God was saying, you know, "I, I want you to. to to tell the church about this idea of waiting and what that kind of looks like for us. And the the big idea that I want to take take us to is that God grows us in our season of waiting. And there's two principles that we can take away from this. They're very simple principles. Um, Number one is that there's a proper way to wait. And number two, there's an improper way to wait. Um, So again, big idea is growing is difficult. Growing is hard, but this is what God really grows us. And there's a proper way to do this and an improper way to do this. So what is the actual definition of, um, of waiting? So the dictionary says to stay where one is or delay action until a particular time or until something else happens. So to stay in a place until an expected event happens, until someone arrives, until it's your turn to do something. So essentially waiting kind of means that we're waiting for something else to happen. So when do we wait in our own lives? I think just very common examples of waiting in our life are um, just lines. We always wait in lines. We wait in lines to use the bathroom. We wait in lines to eat food. We wait in line at Six Flags to ride the roller coasters. And those are just kind of simple examples of waiting in our lives. But Ryan kind of touched on this earlier. What about the more difficult situations in our lives? You know, What if you're jobless? What if you're wanting a new job? You, know, you went to college for four years. You have a family that you have to take care of. And you're doing everything correctly, but you don't know what the next steps are. You're, you're asking God. You feel like he's absent. And you're saying, God, what am I supposed to do in this time? What am I supposed to do in this situation? I, I feel like I'm wasting my time just waiting. You know, what, if, what if you're single? You know, you're 30, 40, 50 years old. You see all your friends are married, engaged, or dating. And you're just in this season of, of singleness. And you're asking God, why, why do I have to be single? Why do I have to wait in this singleness? When every time I look, I see someone else is getting engaged on Instagram. Every time I look around, one of my friends is married. And it looks like it's so much better. Why do I have to wait in this situation? Waiting isn't easy, but it's something that we can't avoid in life. Waiting is something that every single person in life has to go through. And for us, it's necessary that we wait correctly. So when we look at the scriptures, how did the disciples actually wait? And I think there's four takeaways that we can take from them. And honestly, the disciples, they they waited really well. And number one, the disciples, they waited with obedience. Number two, they waited with fellowship. Number three, they waited in constant prayer. And number four, they waited while studying God's word. So we're briefly going to talk about the first two, about them waiting in obedience and waiting in fellowship. And we're really going to key in on what it looks like to wait in constant prayer and what it looks like to wait while we study God's word. So number one, waiting with obedience. I think this whole passage of scripture, we can see that the disciples waited with obedience. And how do we know this? I if we go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and Acts chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, we go before where Ryan preached last week and two weeks ago, we see, we see two specific things. Number one, uh, Acts 1, 4 says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And then Acts 1, 8 through 9, it says, Jesus kind of gives them this charge, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So how, how does this tie into obedience at all? Well, in Acts 1-4, we see a specific command that Jesus gives the disciples, and that's, you guys need to wait for this promise of the Spirit. You guys need to wait for this promise from the Father. But in Acts 1-8-9, Jesus kind of gives them this, this charge of, hey, you guys, you guys are going to be my witnesses in all these different cities, all these different towns, and people are going to know who I am because, because of you guys, and he does this one last kind of cool thing in front of them where he ascends into heaven as he's saying these things, and you can you can kind of just picture how amazed the disciples must have been, just like, wow, did he, did he really just do that? And I'm thinking that they kind of had this emotional high of, we have to go and tell every single person that we know about Jesus. You know, we've been following this guy for the past three years. He just rose from the dead. We see it with our own eyes that he's no longer dead. They, they're probably thinking, we have to go and tell every single person about Jesus. We need to evangelize. We need to just go and do everything he said. But they remember this specific command that he said before any of that. And he said, before any of that, you have to wait. And that must have been so hard for the disciples. So kind of going back to a story of me and Erica, we are on staff with a ministry called Crew. And one of the big things that we have to do is do something called support raising. And if you guys don't know what that is, it pretty much just means uh, fundraising so that we can make a living that 's how we get paid um, and ultimately, that means that we meet with individuals, we meet with families, and we kind of just share the, with them our vision of crew and um, they financially support us, and that 's how we make a living well while we 're in Colorado a big a big part of what we did was you know we were with over eight thousand people that had the same hearts that we did for missions, um, people that would tell us, you know, I, I want to serve Jesus in this way. I want to serve Jesus in this capacity. And they were just sharing their hearts with us. And they were telling us all the different needs of the world. They are telling us why missionaries are needed in this world. And, you know, if you're with the same kind of people for two months and we're all doing the same thing, when we got back to Georgia, the first thing that we wanted to do was, you know, I want to start ministry as soon as possible. I want to go and, you know, start Bible studies. I want to tell these high school t- kids about who Jesus is. But we had to stop for a second and say, But first, before we can do any of that, we have to finish our support raising. And, you know, that kind of ties into the disciples where it was really difficult for us, where we're really excited to go and begin ministry. We have to be obedient to raise our funds first so that we could make a living, so that we could eat, so we could pay for our dog's food, things like that. For the disciples, you know, I think it was a lot harder for them than it was for us. um, Mainly because, you know, they know what they're waiting for. They know they're waiting for the Spirit, but they don't know when it's going to come. Um, And they don't necessarily know how it's going to come. So for them, it would have been really easy for them to go back to their old jobs. Um, It would have been easy for them to go back to being fishermen, to being a tax collector, or just to make a normal living and kind of disperse from um, themselves and do their own thing. And it would have been really easy for them to just forget that, that command of wait and just go make disciples because that's not a bad thing to do. That's not a horrible thing. I can see them very easily saying, no, maybe we don't have to wait. Let's just let's just go and tell other people about Jesus. But they spe- they stayed very um, obedient to his command of wait before you go and tell other people. Oftentimes, waiting can seem really pointless. But it was during this time that the disciples really grew and kind of understood what why they were waiting. So that's the first one. They waited with obedience. Number two, they waited with fellowship. How do we know this? The scriptures say that the disciples were all of one accord, meaning they're all of one mind. And what that kind of means is they weren't just doing their own things. They're all together, but they were all doing things together. So it wasn't just like Peter was over here taking a nap. James and John were over there, you know, playing cards and someone else was over there doing something else, but they're all there together of one mind, of one accord, meaning they're probably reading scripture together. They're probably praying together. They're probably talking about, you know, what is next? What's going to happen next? Um, what, what do you think the spirit is going to look like? What do you think this is going to look like in our lives? And I think that's exactly what they' were doing in this time, because that's what the scriptures say. So for us, what does that look like in this in the time of waiting? You know when times are tough, a lot of times we don't we don't want to wait with other people because it, it makes it harder. and we tend to isolate ourselves from from fellowship. And I don't know why we do that. Maybe it's just human nature that we kind of isolate ourselves from other people when times are tough. But I think that's one of the most dangerous things that we can do, and I think that's one of the worst things that we can do, is to pull ourselves away from the community of God that He's given us. Um, you know, I, I strongly believe that people were made um, to be in relationships with other people, and I think that's clearly evident in the Bible too. Um, in Genesis, you know, God, made, God made Adam and said, it's not good for man to be alone, and He, he creates Eve for her, because you know, people are made to be in relationships with other people. Especially at a time where the where the disciples they didn't really know what their next steps were. They knew to wait, but that's pretty much it. You know, for us, what does that look like? And it's it's important to us to not isolate ourselves because we need fellowship for for support. Um, just when times are tough, we need people who are there with you, people who who can love you, people who can who can guide you, who can um, just give you friendship. And that's so important for us in our own lives. So. That's point number two. The disciples, they weren't by themselves. They waited together in fellowship. Number three, the disciples, um, they were in constant prayer. How do we know this? In Acts 1.14, it says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together the woman and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And then Acts one twenty four says, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. So even within a span of 10 verses we see the disciples praying already. We see them devoting themselves to to God, devoting themselves to prayer. And you know, when we're in this moment of waiting in our own lives, how many of us do we actually how many of us actually pray when when times are tough, when we're waiting for that new job, you know, when your marriage is, is struggling and you're just waiting for something else to happen. How many of us are actually in prayer like the disciples were? And at this point in their lives, Prayer was a staple for the disciples. People knew that these guys were characterized by prayer. And just a few examples again is Acts 114, Acts 124, Acts 242, Acts 3-1, Acts 4:24, Acts 6-6. These are just short examples of them praying. And they're not just praying in, in short times, but they're praying in times where they need God, they need His wisdom, they need His discernment. and um, So I want you guys to think in your own life, from an outside perspective, if someone were to look at your own life, would you be someone who's characterized by prayer? And As I was, as I was reading this, this passage, I was kind of thinking to myself, um, you know, I wonder what these disciples actually prayed for. I wonder what they were actually um, asking God for. And as I was reading some commentaries, I think a few things that they prayed for was, number one, I think they prayed for wisdom because they, they didn't know what was next. They knew to wait for the Spirit again, but they didn't know what the next steps were. Um, they they needed wisdom from God just to know, what does this look like? Why are we here? What's what, what are we doing here, waiting? Number two, I think they waited for power. I think they waited for faithfulness. I think they waited for, or they prayed for confession. And a big part of this is they knew the task at hand was not going to be easy. At this point in their ministry, they knew what the cost of following Jesus was. And they knew that it could cost them their lives. And they kinda of set they, they kind of became these leaders of, of the faith. And they knew their inadequacy and their sin. They knew that, you know, a few a few weeks earlier when Jesus was crucified, that they all scattered. Peter knew that when, when push came to shove, he denied Jesus three times. And they knew that I need I need power from you, God. I need I need faithfulness you, God. I need, I need to confess my own sins because I know that I can't do this by myself. I know that I need you in my life. And number, I think another thing they prayed for was uh, the coming of the Spirit. So um, this is what Jesus told them to wait for. So I think it only makes sense that um, they prayed for this. And, you know, so why, why is constant prayer in our lives so important? And I think there's, there's three specific reasons why at um, some important. And number one is there's, there's a devil that wants to see us fall. There's, there's a tempter out there. There's someone out there who doesn't want to see us succeed in our lives. Number two, we begin to doubt the power and faithfulness of God in our lives. And number three, you know, Jesus and the d- disciples prayed, and they saw it as an utter dependence of God in their lives. So back to a story about me and Erica about um, support raising. Um, to be honest, support raising is not easy at all, and it took us about seven months, eight months to finish um, getting 100% of our goal, but there were times when, you know, we didn't see any money come in for weeks, and, you know, it, it's frustrating, and it's tough, and many times you want to quit, and especially as a man, when you see yourself not being able to provide for your wife and for your family, it gets even more frustrating, and gets even tougher. And my natural instinct isn't, let me pray more, let me trust God more. But my natural instinct is, I need to do more. I need to contact more people. I need, I need to call more people. I need to email more people. I have to get in front of more people. And it becomes less about God, and it becomes a lot more about me. And it becomes more self-motivated than it does God-motivated. Well, there was a time last year where, honestly, I didn't think that we were going to finish our support. I thought it was going to be impossible for us to reach our, all of our fundraising needs. And I was just really questioning God's call in my life. Is this what you really want me to do? And I just remember my my director. His name is Chris. He told me you need to just go in your room and pray. And I remember that day so specifically. I I closed my door and locked it, and I just I prayed for hours. And it was such a sweet time for me, um, for for multiple reasons. And it wasn't one of those prayers where you know I prayed and. God miraculously gave me all of our financial needs. That's not, that's not what happened. Even though if that happened, that would have been really cool. But um, what happened was, as I'm praying and I'm, I'm begging God, you know, what am I doing right now? What am I supposed to do in my life? He started reminding me of His power and His faith in, his, in my life. And, you know, so many times... When we, when we're at this breaking point in our life, that's what God does for us in those times where we, we know there's nothing else we can do. We've, we've depleted ourselves. We've done everything personally that we've tried. The only thing left to do is to trust God. And I remember that day so specifically because I remember that He is just as faithful and loving and a good Father that day as He was when Acts one twelve to twenty six was written. And that was such a beautiful reminder to me. And I think another, another great moment for me was. That day, I just had such an utter dependence on God um, i don 't know if you guys have ever gone to that point where you're you don't know what to do with yourself you're broken and you just know that there's i can't do anything I know that people are going to fail me I know that people can 't do what what I need there's only one thing I can do and that's to pray to God and I think the beautiful thing about the disciples is they knew that and they understood that, and that 's why they were so obedient um, to not just go and make disciples to not just go and tell all these people about Jesus. But they were so obedient in praying because they knew, they understood that this prayer meant that they needed this, this dependence on God. Um, and number four, um, they waited while studying God's word. So if we look at Acts 15 or one 15 through 15-20, we see here um, it says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Judas. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Alcadema, that is field of blood, for it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So how do, how do we know that the disciples were studying God's Word? Well, I, I don't think that Peter was just randomly open up the Scriptures and said, oh, wow, look at this. He just fulfilled, Judas just fulfilled all these prophecies. I think he was actively looking at God's Word. He was actively studying God's Word, looking for an answer, looking at why, why did all of this just happen? Why did Jesus tell us to wait? What does this coming of the Holy Spirit actually look like in our lives? And what we actually see here is that Peter is quoting two specific Old Testament verses. Um, the first one is Psalm 69.25, and the second one is Psalm nine eight. And they're both concerning the replacement of Judas. So Psalm 69.25 says, May there can't be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. And Psalm 109.8 says, May his days be few. May another take his office. And so both of these were Old Testament prophecies. Um, and they, they had to be fulfilled. And what Peter sees is Wow, Judas just just did this. He 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 betrayed Jesus, and now we have this empty empty spot. And um, Peter uses the original or the past tense of the verb necessity here in the Greek, which means it it is it was necessary for Judas to betray Jesus. And then in Psalm one o nine eight, he uses the present tense of the verb necessity, which means that it is necessary now to replace Judas. Um, so. Kind of to sum that up, I know it's kind of confusing, but Psalm 6925 kind of points out the removal of Judas, and Psalm 109.8 remo- or points out that now someone has to take his place. Um, so that kind of shifts gears there, and Peter kind of realizes, well, now we have this other task at hand. Now we have to replace Judas. And the, it's this, this idea of this apostolic circle of 12. I was reading through some of these commentaries, and some of them actually believe that that's why... Um, Jesus had them wait so they could actually restore this circle of 12 before they did anything. Now, I don't know if that's um, true or not. I don't think it's that necessarily that important. But as we go on, that's kind of why we see Matthias replace Judas um, in Acts 25. But I kind of want to shift us to something else, to something I think is a little more important. And that's to talk about what actually happened to Judas and um you know, when we read the scriptures, it's kind of a, a somber reality. It's kind of a gruesome text. And Luke kind of, or yeah, Luke really makes it um, a descriptive death. Um, so what happened was Judas was, was so guilty. He was, he was so broken with what he had just done to Jesus that he, he actually bought a field. He purchased a field with the money that he used to betray Jesus. And what he did with that is he ended up hanging himself. And as gruesome as that is, that that's that's how he felt. That's what he felt he needed to do. And the scriptures even go more descriptive and says when he hung himself, the weight of his body kinda made um whatever he was hanging himself on fall. And as he fell his body split open and his, his bowels crushed out. That that's a very descriptive that's a very sad reality of what happened to Judas. But um I think when we kinda think about Judas, you know, I always hear you know, Judas is a horrible person. He's a betrayer. I can't believe he did that to Jesus. Um, I think a scarier thought for us to realize and a scarier thought for us to recognize is that Judas was a full member of Jesus' 12. He's someone that walked with Jesus every single day. He knew the life and the ministry of Jesus. And he still did not believe in who he was and who he said he was. And, you know, I, I think that's, that's truly a scary thought for someone that walked with him for three years still don't understand who Judas was and for for some money he he betrayed the person um, who he said he loved and um you know people like i said they always talk bad about Judas and to be honest you and i are no different from Judas um, you know i know in my line of work some i work with crew high school i work specifically with high school students and there's so many times i i just know that now I'm talking to a high school kid, and he's saying, well, you know, why are you here? And I, I just don't tell them the full truth. I don't tell them I'm here to talk about Jesus. And uh, there, there's so many times in my life, maybe your life too, where we have this opportunity to share the gospel with someone, but we get scared and we, we flip the conversation to something else, something that makes it more comfortable. And so what's the difference from us betraying Jesus the way Judas did and us not sharing the gospel with this, this person who knows nothing about Jesus, who has a life that's that's destined for hell because he doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, and I'm too worried about myself. I'm too scared to share the gospel with this person. Now, what is the difference in Judas's life there and my life there? And, you know, the sad reality of all of this is that Judas' death, his gruesome, his nasty death, is something that we all deserve, and that's the price of sin. The price of sin is an eternal separation from God. The price of sin is us dying a gruesome death, dying a death that is separated from God. And, you know, that's not something that I just say lightly because the the big difference between me and Judas now is Judas did not understand the saving grace of Jesus, And the big difference for me is I understand that. And I no longer have to live that life that Judas lived. I no longer have to have to be condemned to that life, I no longer have to live that life of death, that life of separation from Jesus, because I, I understand the gospel. I know that Jesus died for me. I know that Jesus loves me. I know that he took away all my sins. And I think the more beautiful part is that Jesus allows me to partake in this, in this mission now. Now that same mission that he gave to the disciples in Acts 1.8 is the same mission he gave to us, to go and tell everyone about who he is, to go and make disciples. And I think that makes the gospel even more beautiful. I think that makes the gospel even um, that much better for us and that much sweeter is that we don't deserve that death of Jesus anymore, but we can partake in this ministry of telling people about Jesus um, so I know that was kind of kind of a heavy um subject, but um, you know, church I think the just the the four important things that we have to remember um, is just that we need to wait. Obedience. As tough as it might be for us, as tough as waiting is, we need to wait with obedience. Number two, we need to wait with others. We cannot isolate ourselves from other people. We need to be in this community that God's given us. Number three, we have to wait in prayer. If Jesus and the disciples saw it as an utter dependence in their own lives, we have to wait in prayer as well. And number four, we have to wait in God's word. I think uh one of the best ways I've ever heard it is, you know, praying is us talking to God and Scripture, reading God's word, is God talking to us. So we should really be in Scripture a lot if we want to hear God talk to us. And I think the disciples model that perfectly for us of what it looks like to wait. Mm-hmm. So I kind of I, I want to just close with this story of a man named Jim Elliott. Um, Jim Elliott, he was he was a missionary and he grew up in Portland, Oregon. When he was young, he was at church and he heard about these missionaries and he went to go hear them speak. And that day he realized. I want to be a missionary as well. Well, Jim got his wish in 1952, and um, Jim Elliott set sail for Ecuador with his ministry partner named Pete Fleming. Uh, Jim and Pete, they spent their first year in a small city, small town called Quito, and they just spent that year learning Spanish. And uh, th- then from there, they moved to a small village called Shandia, which is a Quechua Indian village, and they replaced the missionaries who were there. And during that time, they spent three years learning, learning Spanish. Learning how to do ministry properly and learning um, just the culture of Ecuador. So just already thinking about waiting. He's waited his whole life to be a missionary. Finally gets his chance. He's finally in Ecuador. And for four years, he has to wait. He has to be obedient to God's calling and just wait by just learning Spanish, learning how to do mission work, and learning how to just embrace this culture. I can't picture how hard that must have been for Jim Elliott. But um, as time went on, um, he heard of this, this tribe called the Alka tribe, and this Alka tribe was a very, very dangerous tribe. They killed many of the Quichua Indian uh, people who um, Jim lived within, and there was actually an oil company that worked near the, the Alka tribe, and they killed many of the, the oil workers. So they actually had to shut down their oil site because no one wanted to work there. Well, Jim knew that the only way to fix this was to share Jesus, to share the gospel with this Alka tribe so jim pete and they greeted a team to um a team of five they decided that you know let's just go and share the gospel with these people and one of their uh, missionary team his name was nate saint he was a missionary supply pilot meaning he would drop supplies from their plane to um just people who were in need well he had the idea of how about we fly the plane over their tribe and we'll drop this bucket with supplies down and we'll just give those to them And they had this amplifier on, on their plane and they would speak messages to the Alka tribe, um, peaceful messages, and they would just they would talk. And they did this for months. So now picture this: already in waiting, you know, he's he's waited his whole life to be a missionary. He has to wait four extra years now. And now, just for months, he's so close to to reaching the people he wants. He just has to fly a plane over every single day and just drop supplies every day. Well, one day the Alka tribe they sent up supplies or they sent a present back. Um, after they dropped the, the little bucket. And when they got it back up, they said, okay, now this is our time. Jim said, this is our time now to meet the Alka tribe face-to-face. So they found this little uh, beach, and they, they landed their plane on there. And they, they actually started engaging in conversation with some of the Alka tribe, and they shared a meal with a few of them. I think one of the highlights for them was Nate Saint got to take one of the Alka tribe members on his plane and fly them around the village and kind of show them, this is where you guys, where you guys live. So they're making headway, they're starting to do things that they see are productive. And you know, a few days pass by and Nate and Pete or sorry, Jim and Pete are are kinda hanging out and they see two Alka tribe women coming towards them. And excitedly they run over to those two women, they're waving really excitedly, but these two women don't look happy and they look angry. And Nate or Pete Jim and Pete as they as they're walking towards these two women, they hear this this screaming and this screeching behind them. And they see that their missionary team is getting speared to death by the Alka tribe. Now Jim, seeing this, he pulls out his gun and is getting ready to shoot for self-defense. But he remembered a pact that he made with his missionary team saying, we will not shoot any Alka tribe members who don't know Jesus. Because as soon as, as, soon as we harm them, as soon as we kill one of them, everything that we've worked for our whole lives will go to waste. So knowing that he's going to die, he puts his gun down and uh, Jim and Pete are speared to death. If that story ended there, that would be one of the most gruesome, horrible stories um, in the world. But the beauty of this story is that Jim was married to a woman named Elizabeth, and Nate was also married to a woman, and um, Elizabeth and Nate's wife and their daughter, um, they decided to finish the job that Jim started. So they went back to Ecuador, they went to the tribe, and they pretty much did what Jim and Pete and Nate and the rest of the team did, and just shared the gospel, shared Jesus, shared life with this tribe. And it could have been so easy for them just to, to mourn. It would have been so easy for them just to say, "You know, I can't believe they did this, but they, they had to finish the job that Jim started. Now the Alka tribe is considered more of a Christian tribe than any other religion. And that's because of the work that Jim Elliot and his missionary team did. And while Jim, didn't, a- he wasn't able to see the fruits of his work, his waiting paid off. He was obedient to his calling of everything that God told him to do. And Ultimately, that, thats I think that's the big message that God wants us to know. We, we Waiting may be so hard that we may not even be able to see the fruits of our waiting, just like Jim. But God has a much better plan for us. It's a much bigger plan for us than we could ever imagine. And that's thats just the big takeaway I want us um, to, to learn today is just you know, waiting may be tough, but God is really going to grow us. He's really going to prepare us during this time. Pray with me father thank you for today thank you for um, just your grace and your love and um, your goodness in our lives father um, and god many of us in here may be waiting um, life may be really tough life may be really difficult right now but god i just pray um, that we wait obediently that we wait with others that we wait with um, with prayer lord and that we just wait in your word god we thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives and for all this in Jesus name amen